This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, we mentioned some of the top headlines today concerning COVID and the vaccine, uh, Moderna's vaccine for younger teens. But I also wanted to mention that a White House official saying that half of American adults will be fully vaccinated as of today, Tim. So we are definitely making progress in the United States. We are. And the number that the Biden administration is looking for a little over a month from now, uh, the 4th of July, 70 percent of American adults having at least one shot. As far as the cases around the world, topping 167.4 million deaths, exceeding 3.47 million. Back to vaccines, more than 1.68 billion doses have been given. All right, let's get back uh, to someone who has often been a guiding voice for us throughout the pandemic. We're talking about Dr. Seth Letterman. He's co-founder, CEO, and chairman of the New York-based specialty pharmaceutical uh, biopharma company, Tonics Pharmaceuticals, and he joins us on the phone in Bedford, Massachusetts. Um, Dr. Letterman, good to have you here with Tim and myself. There is a lot going on, and it does always feel like we're making some steps forward. And uh, every once in a while, though, of course, when we look at the numbers and look at around the world, we're reminded that we are not yet um, out of the health pandemic, at least not globally. How do you see kind of where we are in our world right now? Well, first, it's great to be back with you. But I think that your summary was very accurate. It feels really good in the in America with our vaccine supplies and cases dropping, but the world is still um, in a pretty tough place. I'd like to be optimistic but as CEO of a company that's developing a vaccine, an antiviral, and a skin test, I'm paid to be pessimistic. So I am worried about the fall, about whether COVID is becoming seasonal. I'm worried about the durability of vaccine protection, and I'm worried about the variants coming back to the United States from places like India and other places. Which one of those three things worries you the most? Well, I think the vaccine durability is the biggest issue. The mRNA or the modified RNA vaccines are remarkable. And I, I, I don't, don't even have words to express how grateful we should be to the inventors and the developers of these vaccines uh, who have made such an important contribution. But it is a brand new technology. We don't know the durability. I think there's good data now for about six months of protection, but there are two kinds of immunity, antibody immunity and T-cell immunity. And if, if, if the protection from these vaccines fades, then that would be more of a signature of antibody immunity. So I think that we are all waiting to see if vaccinated people will be protected a year out. Right. And we've talked with you about your your vaccine, the TNX 1800, right? That is, it's all about eliciting a T-cell immunity. Exactly. We, we are developing TNX 1800. It elicits a strong T-cell immunity. And T-cell immunity is the kind that can last for years mm-hmm. or decades. And that's usually imparted by a live virus vaccine, like the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccines. Those are three live virus vaccines given once in childhood. So we're optimistic I'm hoping that the mRNA vaccines will have durable protection, but we just don't 
know. We also don't know if. But can it can it be just as good? Annual revaccination. Can it, I was just going to say can a, can a booster shot though, uh, Dr. Letterman, basically kind of give us that reassurance and protection? Well, we just don't know. It's an excellent point. I know that um, uh, you know there's been an idea that annual vaccinations with the mRNA vaccines might be good, but. We don't know. The mRNA vaccines uh, are novel because they avoid the immune system, but we don't know how well they avoid it. And there's just no evidence to lead us to have a national policy that's based on annual revaccinations. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful they're durable. I'm hopeful they can be used in revaccination scenarios, but it's too early to tell. Dr. Letterman, where are you exactly in the development of your vaccine? We expect to be in human trials early in next year, in 2022. We've announced very encouraging data in monkeys that have been challenged with COVID-2, the virus that causes COVID. But uh, we are still developing a, a preparation of our vaccine that meets the high standard to be tested in humans. Our vaccine takes longer to develop the manufacturing protocols, but we expect once it's once we've been through it the first time, actually our cost of goods, our doses, and the rest of it are probably more suitable for wide deployment uh, to, than the existing mRNA vaccine. You said that one thing that concerned you was durability of the mRNA vaccine. So I'm, I'm wondering about, not about durability of, of, of your vaccine, but about resistance that it has to uh, potential variants. Well, we, the the T-cell vaccines, we think, will be more robust to, to covering the different variants than some of the other vaccines that are more focused on antibodies. Uh, Dr. Letterman, we were, we were finishing up talking about your vaccine that you're in develop, that's in development at Tonic, Tonics Pharmaceuticals. And I know b- because it is a publicly traded company and because uh, of regulatory reasons, you can't be exact with, with dates. But what's a realistic way for us to think about if it goes to clinical trials in humans starting next year, when could it become available for widespread potential emergency use authorization? Um, I think it would take at least a year after the first clinical studies, because as you've seen from the Pfizer-Moderna experiences, you need large studies to show the effects. But part of it will be influenced by how prevalent the um, infection is, how prevalent COVID is. Uh, Hopefully, again, hopefully, COVID will be less and less prevalent, and uh, then it will take us longer to develop it. But um, if if there is a big rebound because of seasonality, the variants, or, you know, maybe because of the waning of protection from the existing vaccines, then, you know, things could move more quickly. You know, it's interesting. We have a story coming up. It's in uh, Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, and it's specifically taking a look at Cuba and the work that they have done in vaccines. And Tim and I were kind of marveling as we came into the studio today about who knew, you know, all of the work that Cuba's doing in the biosense, bioscience sector specifically. And they've they've got advanced vaccines that they've been working on, you know, uh, when it comes to lung cancer and so on. It's actually, I think, before FDA approval. It does remind me, and we we saw that certainly with COVID, you know, that when you tap the world, you know, maybe what we can come together on and ultimately solve. And I do wonder, since this is your world, how is the world change when it comes to really working on global solutions, global vaccines 
not just on something like COVID, but the next virus that's going to, you know, kind of turn the world into a tailspin or send the world into a tailspin or on some of the diseases and ailments that really plague our society? Well, I think COVID has brought the world together in the research community. But um, even looking at something like the Pfizer vaccine, which is, you know, just remarkable. I mean, the original work started with Drew Weissman and Catalin Carrico at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's American-born, but she's Hungarian. Um, and then if you look at their major partner, um, BioNTech is based in Mainz, Germany, um, and uh, is run largely by a husband and wife team who are Turkish. And, you know, you could go on and on and on. So mm. I, I don't know that science has any borders that, um, you know, basically these are well-intentioned people getting together and putting their best um, ideas together. So I think that this really is a global effort, even if the most recognizable um, uh, sponsor of it is, is a global pharmaceutical Pfizer based in, in New York City. I think that, you know, there really is a global effort. And, um, you know, the, the change of information, the way that articles have come out so quickly, people rushing together, it's been a wonderful um, uh, community effort. Hey, Dr. Letterman, um, what's the way that we get to widespread vaccination in the United States? What's the right conversation to have with people who are still hesitant to take one of these vaccines that's available? I wish I knew the answer. I'm hopeful that uh, time will will be a deciding factor. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people don't want to be first. They want to see that other people have gotten it, that, you know, that the, that the benefits are evident and things like that. So hopefully time and information will come through. I think, um, you know, it was very difficult to have the pandemic at all, but it was also difficult to have it during an election year. And mm -hmm. I think that now that the messaging to people is much more consistent, that, uh, you know, the vaccines are safe and effective, I, I hope slowly um, people will come through. But there are other things that will be incentives. For right. example, the CDC recommendations saying if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask in many places. Uh, going back to work, going back to school. Right. A lot of these places can regulate uh, whether someone can do something if they're vaccinated or not. All right. Dr. Seth Letterman, thank you so much. Co-founder, CEO, chairman of Tonics Pharmaceuticals on the phone from New Bedford, Massachusetts. I measure the stock up about 68% so far this year, trading for a dollar thirteen. So just to kind of give you some perspective in terms of movement. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So you might recall last week at the Bloomberg Live virtual event, the Bloomberg Business Week, we caught up with Jason Lin, the director behind a massively successful Fast and Furious franchise. Well, the latest installment, Tim, out this past weekend called F9, opened internationally. Most of the tickets uh, sales happening in the biggest market in the world, China. There was a lot going on. Well, it makes sense, given, given the status of reopening in China versus the United States. Exactly. We're going to talk about uh, the movie industry theaters uh, opening up right here on Bloomberg Business Week. So let's talk about the theater industry. Someone who's got a front row seat to that F9 opening and just what's going on. And great to be talking with him again is IMAX CEO Richard Gelfon. He joins us on the phone in New York City. Rich, and so nice to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? Um, I'm great. And I'm especially great because of what you alluded to with the opening of F9 last <laughs> weekend. Um, you know, it's it's been a long, cold 
winter, as you guys are quite aware. And it's nice to have the good old-fashioned Hollywood blockbuster back. And I think you know F9 really opened up like a Hollywood blockbuster. It did $165 million globally, $135 million in China. Uh, IMAX's market share was very healthy. It's our biggest opening um, in you know since before the pandemic started. So feeling a lot better than I was a few weeks ago, Carol. Wow, well, that's a big change. Yeah. yeah how, I mean, how were you feeling a few weeks ago, and and what changed that? Was it this opening weekend, especially globally? You know, probably being more honest than I should be, this has been one of the most frustrating periods of the pandemic for me. And that's because I think the world is really ready to go back to the movies. And I think there are a lot of movies that are ready to go. But I think not every territory in the world is ready at the same time and the same pace. And the traditional distribution model would say you open up globally at one time all over the world. But, you know, guess what? This just isn't the time where that works. So this time is called for different kinds of models. And as a result, um, the studios who mostly were located in Hollywood were looking out their windows and saying, the pandemic is really not doing well here, ignoring the fact that, you know, there have been blockbusters in Japan and China and Korea and Taiwan for months. So I think kind of we've been ready in a lot of places, but the movies just haven't been there. And one of the things that was really unique about uh, the release of F9 was it was released in China about five weeks before it's being released in the rest of the world, which is a different model. And I think most of the studios have played it really conservative and said, you know, we're not opening anywhere until we could open everywhere. Um, but fortunately, Universal you know, took a risk in doing this, and it opens in the U.S. in late June, um, but it really worked. And I think you need to demonstrate that people want to go back to the movies and you need the kind of numbers that we had in order to get people, uh, studios, comfortable opening their movies. So I think this was a pretty big deal. Yeah, well, what's interesting is I remember you saying too, when you and I talked um, uh, at that Bloomberg Live event, I think it was back in April, you know how you guys went into COVID earlier because of China and then came out of it earlier too because of China and that how China in, in many ways has been a guiding light about kind of where we're going and how the world is reopening. Not apples to apples, I understand that, but it has helped us give us a little bit of kind of the way forward in terms of how the world maybe reopens. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I think the big distinguishing thing between China and other places, though, is China didn't vaccinate at the level that other places did mm. and mostly achieved its kind of feeling of safety and low results through social contact tracing and other means that were not used here in the West. So in a way, as good as China's been, um, places like North America could be even better once it really opens up, because I, I imagine you guys noticed that the Nick game the other night, there were 15,000 people, um, you know, having a great time. And I really feel that it's going to be like the Roaring Twenties and people, once they get out of the house and, you know, they can go back to what their lives were like before, I, I think that's going to happen very well, quickly. And I think, you know, it, it, as I said, it's happening in Asia and there's no reason I think that that won't happen here. 
Well, I'm, I'm wondering about that specifically here in the U.S. because we have seen companies like Disney and, and Warner Media, uh, as it has is still called, uh, release theatrical releases direct to streaming, direct to consumer. And, and I'm wondering if you think that consumers have been conditioned to enjoy this stuff at home rather than in a theater, and that might not provide the incentive for them to get back to what they were doing before the pandemic because now they've been able to do it from their couch and not get a babysitter. Yeah, I mean, that's a narrative that I think a lot of the streaming services are promoting, but I don't really think it's going to play out that way. I mean, people are locked in their living rooms or locked in their kitchens. So when you're locked in your living room, you watch movies on your television set. When you're locked in your kitchen, you don't go to restaurants, you eat in your kitchen. When you're allowed to go out, I mean, you look at almost every behavior, look at what's gone on with the restaurants in New York and London and Los Angeles. I mean, people weren't conditioned to only bringing in food. They were limited by the circumstances to doing that. And you even look at um, um, one of the recent films, Godzilla vs. Kong, that was um, mm -hmm. released simultaneously by Warner Media. Um, in, in IMAX, we sold out about 1,000 shows around the United States when people could get it for free if there were subscribers on their TV set. So I, I just don't think that's the way it is. I mean, people go to the movies partly for escapism, partly for social reasons, partly for a social activity, partly to get away from their kids, partly <laughs> to get away from their parents. True. You know, everyone has a different reason. But I don't think they're going to say, oh, I'd much rather watch this in my living room with my family, which is what I've been doing for the last but, 15 months. That's, oh, gee, it's the summer. I can't wait to do that on Saturday night. But I, Rich, mean, I just think, but you Rich know, is, I am, as I am be, being sarcastic. But, but, <laughs> no, but duly noted. Continue for one second. Sorry, Carol, but no, sure. it was an interim solution designed mm -hmm. for pandemic. And I don't blame anybody. I mean, if you're Disney, you're Warner, you know, you, you know, the, the movie theaters are closed. You've got this content, you paid for it. You've got to do something with it. And by the way, streaming happens to be something that the stock market likes an awful lot. So you say, oh, I'll stream. But they know that that's, a, that's made for a time and a place. And again, I don't want to make too much of it. But if you look at the recent results and the, re, and the projections from the streaming services during the last quarter, as the pandemic has started to fade, you know, the numbers for streaming have, have you know, not kept pace with where they were in the pandemic. And again, that's logical. And people are still going to stream certain things. But for big blockbuster movies like IMAX does, no one's going to look forward to spending Saturday night on the couch with well, their parents. Rich, to be <laughs> fair, just like you're saying, the narrative of the streaming guys, they're kind of talking their book. To some extent, I think it's safe to say that you're talking your book about people coming back. But I mean, what do you then make of all the streaming deals that are happening right now? We're kind of on you know, the edge of our seat waiting for Amazon to maybe announce that they're acquiring the MGM you know, Studios uh, lineup and library. Uh, and so, You've worked in mergers and acquisitions. You're an investment banker. You understand this world. Do you think this is just a cycle that runs out of steam, or do you think there's real momentum? Because there's some things that change as, but as a result of the pandemic that will stay with us. And I think there's a lot that would say that streaming is part of that. 
I think streaming is part of it, but I think in a different way than it was during the pandemic. I think for niche movies and movies that, you know, cost less in a budget and have to find a specific audience, releasing them direct to streaming will make sense because the marketing costs are extremely high to do that. Reaching your consumer in a niche market is difficult to find, and I think those things will continue to stream. Also, almost every studio has come up now with a 45-day window uh, where they'll, they'll stream 45 days after opening. Mm-hmm. And I think, if anything, that's going to make the content more valuable and the theatrical run more valuable to the studio. Because remember, how did HBO get started? How did, um, um, how did Netflix get started? They streamed Hollywood movies. And those movies got a lot of exposure, got a brand, got good word of mouth, um, got brand recognition, built sequels, and then people paid a lot to go stream them. Um, you know, as, uh, I'll ask you a question. Name five stream movies from Netflix last year. Um, you know, I, 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 and, and by the way, it is a trick question because I was just in L.A. and I asked ten people that, and nobody can name five stream movies during. And that's streaming. When I yeah. was growing up, there were TV movies, and then there were real movies. I think now there's going to be real movies and streaming movies. But do theaters have to do something, Rich, to kind of bring everybody back? Like, listen, I love that the seats got more comfy, that I can stretch out. Like, that has, it's a reason for me to go to theaters. I know people who it's become a real date night where they're in a little cocoon and there's drinks and there's food and it's like an experience. But, you know, I don't know if that's just the minority or do the majority want something wrong, you know, more that, you know, experience, experiential aspect of it. Does it have to be amped up? Yeah, I think it does. And I think that's why IMAX is doing really well. So if you look at our results in Asia, our market share has gone up in virtually every country post-pandemic because I think you know people who have been watching in their living rooms and watching their televisions, they, when they leave, they want to do something really special. So I think you know that's why IMAX has been uh, very successful over the last number of years, and that's why I think we'll be even more successful during this because – Filmmakers make these big films to be seen on the big screen and to be heard with the big sound. And, um, you know, I think you're completely right. And, um, you know, God knows I hope you're even more and more right because we'll be a beneficiary of that trend. (laughs) Hey, Rich, I'm wondering how your business changes, how the economics of IMAX changes when you have more consolidation within the studios, when Discovery and uh, Warner Media are tied up if Amazon and MGM studios are tied up, are they going to charge you more? No, I don't. You have to look on it a very individual basis. So discovery made unscripted content and none of that really went into the theatrical ecosystem. So by merging with Warner, you're not really losing a studio. You're getting actually, I think a more pro theatrical management team Hmm. behind one of the best studios that's existed for a long time. Um, I think if Amazon ends up buying MGM, they're buying it for their, you know, their expertise in television program, which programming, which fits perfectly with Amazon's prime strategy. I don't think Amazon is going to, you know, start putting bond on your telephone. I mean, I just don't think that's the way um, 007 or, or the Broccoli family, which owns a lot of those rights, 
wants to see that franchise go. I mean, MGM has not been in the blockbuster business except for Bond for a while. They've been mm. really in the TV business. I think it makes a lot of sense for Amazon and fits right in. So I, I don't think um, there's going to be a loss of content, no. Hey, we wanted to also ask you about working in China. I mean, you've been in the market. You um, have figured out a way forward. And I feel like it gets more and more complicated between the East versus the West, particularly when you're talking about China. There's a story, it's among the most read on the Bloomberg today about um, actor and former WWE champion John Cena apologizing for describing Taiwan as a country in a promotional video that he did for his latest movie. And he saying sorry, ultimately, in Mandarin after the comments triggered a backlash in China. Is the world allowing China too much say and control in your view, especially when it comes to kind of the arts and culture? I mean, China is such a complicated place. And I've been going to China for almost 25 years. And the way IMAX dealt with China is we created a separate entity um, in, in, in Hong Kong called IMAX China. And it's owned by a lot of people in mainland China, people in Hong Kong. It's staffed by almost completely Chinese people. Its senior management team is Chinese. And we've been one of the most successful Western media companies in China. Um, and I, and I, I think the reason for that is because we haven't tried to come in and be a U.S. company in China. We tried to be a Chinese company in China. And I think a lot of the media entertainment companies have missed that nuance a little bit and have tried to set up a branch office run by an American who you know, heads that branch and the Chinese are very proud people, and they're, obviously their culture is really important to them. And I think trying to manage their culture on remote control is difficult, and I think there are a lot of pitfalls, and we're seeing a lot of those. So yeah. we've taken a different approach, and I think it's worked for us, and I, I would expect that other people are going to learn from that and take a similar approach. Hey, one thing I wanted to ask you, because we are awaiting um, some comments from uh, the family of George Floyd, who was meeting with President Biden today. This is, of course, the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. Early on in the pandemic, you know, we talked with you uh, about, or, you know, we talked with you about a month ago, but how early on in the pandemic and some of the difficult issues over racism and rioting and companies were dealing with that, George Floyd, of course, Black Lives Matter. And you said that you had some outside PR consultants that told you to basically hide and be quiet. You felt otherwise. What is the responsibility of global corporations on, on things like racism and what happened to George Floyd? I mean, obviously, um, George Floyd was murdered, and thank God, um, at least, you know, one of those killers was brought to justice. And that's, you know, that's the bedrock of America and, you know, really happy that that happened. Um, in terms of a corporate response, I mean, at the time, we did a number of internal things. We, you know, we, we put together a committee. We've done different things on um, diversity recruiting, and we'll continue to do them. But I don't think um, there's one stock answer for every company. So, you know, for example, I don't know whether you're aware of this, but IMAX is a Canadian company, mm -hmm. and we do business in 84 countries. So I think maybe our responsibility and our views are different than a company that is a U.S. company completely. I mean, there are just a lot of um, conflicting issues. But I do think all companies have a duty when there's massive social injustice to engage in some way 
and to make sure their employees feel heard. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing inside the company? Because that's something that we've been talking about all day at Bloomberg Quick Take uh, and, and something that I've been thinking a lot about a lot. Because uh, in the last year, we got a lot of commitments from, from companies about how they're trying to hire more diverse talent across the companies and making changes within the company. What specifically are you guys doing at IMAX? Well, you know, it's, it, it, it's never enough, but you should know that in the five years um, from uh, five years ago to now, um, my management team is about 50% women or people of diversity. And that was, you know, we did that before, you know, any of these efforts became public. And, you know, we're trying to add um, um, more women to our board and more people of color. And we've been somewhat successful in doing that, but we have um, farther to go. And I think um, preaching tolerance day to day and inclusiveness and you know, that's the way we always try to model our culture, and this just reinforces it. But I do wonder, too, especially when you're a publicly held entity, we talk about this, whether it's ESG, climate change, um, but, you know, social responsibilities and invest, you know, there's a lot of speak, as you know, Rich, about the importance of diversity, and yet it does still feel like when it comes to actual actions and, you know, your company aside, that companies still are kind of slow to make change. Why is that? Well, I can only speak for my own company, and I told you we completely remade our management team and are in the process of, you know, remaking significant parts of our board. So, you know, not to point fingers at anyone, but it's harder for bigger companies. We're a relatively small company, so we can be much more agile. And I think also because um, we're so diverse geographically, you know, we have a different perspective, you know, coming into it, like, you know, for example, in Asia, we have 150 employees. In China, we have an office in Japan. So, you know, we don't have to be encouraged or sensitized on, you know, how we feel about Asians. They're part of our company. They're part of our DNA. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's part of your answer, size of the company and, you know, its roots being diverse or its uh, roots being more singular. Hey, Rich, when you and I talked back in April, too, um, and just kind of going back to the impact you know, the pandemic has had on so many of us in, in so many different ways. You mentioned to me that the pandemic opened your eyes, that you can't be a one trick pony. And and Tim and I were talking about, you know, innovation is one thing, Tim, right? We talk about a lot with companies. We do. And I'm, and I'm wondering how you are innovating at IMAX and, and what's in the pipeline? Because before the pandemic, the narrative was, okay, this is about the experience economy. How do we get people to do things that they cannot do at home, they can't do online, and they can only do in person? And of, of course, seeing a movie on an IMAX screen in an IMAX studio is, is a way that you do that. But I mean, how do you take that even further? Yeah, so I was going to say this country, this company has been built on innovation, and some of this might surprise you, but um, stadium seating was invented by IMAX. Um, we were the first ones more recently to launch laser projection on a global basis, uh, advanced sound systems, uh, special cameras, that we built, whether to go into space, which we've done, or to go to the bottom of the ocean. Um, We've always been a leading innovator in an industry not known for innovation um, um, in the the movie industry. But during the pandemic, we stepped it up a little more, and we worked with a company that's fairly well known in the founders of our company, of our partner in artificial intelligence had started a company called Kensho, 
which is now owned by S&P, and it's uh, the largest sale of an AI company. And we're working with them. We announced a joint venture to figure out how to enhance images. So whether they're old movies or old sports events, and there are a lot of uses for that, whether in hardware or software, we haven't fully outlined, outlined it yet. Um, we've got another new product for um, streaming on large screen TVs in the home. It's called IMAX Enhanced. And we've done a, uh, deals with Sony and Tencent and others where when you have content that's been put through the process and you watch it on these big screens, it, 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 it looks better than it otherwise would by a significant amount. Um, we've been working on our direct-to-consumer app. Um, we're looking at putting live content in our theaters. So we're always right. you know, wow. urged to look on how we can innovate. And in, in, in fact, not many people will say this, but you know, despite all the horrible things about the pandemic, you know, one good thing is it gave you, you know, a reset. It gave you the time and the ability to use a lot of your people to try and look for new ways to innovate. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think people were worried about you wouldn't be able to do that. But ultimately, uh, we found a way forward with that. Hey, Rich, thank you so much. So happy to talk with you. Uh, and really a nice deep diving uh, conversation there and look forward to uh, checking in with you again uh, further in the year. And hopefully we just continue this reopening globally. Um, so, so great. Thank you so much. I'm ex CEO Rich Galfon uh, on the phone in New York City. I can't even remember the last time I, went I to was a just trying to think of but you know what, we had a kid a year before the pandemic. That changes so, so we haven't been to the theater since before then. Yeah, there was a point. But I know I went with Aggie. It was probably, God, I'm just trying to think what it was. I don't know. I it think was, we saw it's probably the, an Avenger movie. That or something. great rock climbing documentary. Uh, I forget what it's called. It How was many so years good. Ago? It was a long time ago. <laughs> I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody. Yep, it's Tuesday. Got to check my calendar there. It is, is time that to it? drive to the... <laughs> Does it feel like one of those weeks it does for the markets? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. And I feel like you're, it's playing out that way in the trading day. Let's get to it with Cole Smead, President and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management on the phone in Phoenix, Arizona. The Smead Value Fund, check it out, beating just about all of its peers so far this year, up more than 25%, beating most of its peers, too, over the past five years, returning on average more than 15% annually. Cole, how are you? Doing well. How about you guys? Doing well, doing well. Um, tell us, you know, what we love about talking with you is you guys are buying, you're selling, you're taking moves. Um, you love the discovery move with AT&T. Let's just go right to it because we have been talking about streaming every day. We're waiting to see if Amazon ultimately does that MGM deal. Why do you like the discovery AT&T deal? It's a great question. We've been involved with Discovery uh, since late 17, and we actually were involved with Scripps prior to the transaction where they bought um, Scripps. And, you know, Discovery, uh, as Barry Diller said uh, last week, um, went from being, um, you know, a nothing to a something under the leadership of David Saslav since that company's gone public back in 07. 
And um, SASLAF took what was, you know, really kind of considered low-grade content, reality television, and made it a highly profitable business. And no one expected that, might I add. And now he, with a background where he was at NBC Universal for years, is going to take, um, you know, scripted television. He's going to be taking news and sports and putting into those uh, into one place. And I think the irony is they yet again do not believe in his leadership or the assets they have in comparison. And um, having the blessing of the Malone and Newhouse family um, in tow with, in effect, a takeover by AT&T shareholders of Discovery, we think it's got quite a bit of fun all around it, and, and we're very pleased to be involved as shareholders. Did you buy more Discovery as a result? Uh, well, let's, let's put it this way. I, I, my compliance officer is probably listening. So I, I will <laughs> say um, we find it interesting. Uh, we, we, what we've been doing with the run-up in Discovery you know, through this year is we were actually buying uh, non-voting shares. Um, and so we're, we're kind of blown at the spread between the voting versus non-voting. Right. Um, and, and they also, reacted the differently, to right, too. We saw yeah. that in the day, yeah. Yeah, and Malone also said he won't take a premium on his super voting, which was even a higher price. So um, think of while Amazon is finishing up their deal with MGM, the other interesting part is this movie business uh, of, the, of this, um, you know, the Warner Brothers studio, if you will. It's a highly marketable asset. Um, so yes, there's debt going on in this, but not to say that there's not assets that they could divest if, if they want. And we know there's buyers. We know Apple needs content. We know Google needs content. There's a big short on content. Um, and I would also say to you guys that all these businesses are in play. Lionsgate's in play. Viacom CBS is in play. Discovery's in play. Time Warner's in play. Or Warner Media's in play, excuse me. Um, I, I think it's only going to heat up because the pockets and the stock prices and the money that could come after them from the likes of Apple and Google are incredible. Do you think NBC Universal, owned by Comcast right now, is in play? Uh, well, how, I, I, you know, uh, using Malone's comments um, from the last week, he said that it's problematic for Comcast because of the regulatory. They own the data, they know a lot about the customer, and they have the content. Um, I, I think you could also see where they could get a deal done where they kind of step back arm's length, um, where it's not directly held by Comcast, but um, let's say you have uh, co-ownership or part of it's sold um, to get a deal where you bring in uh, other people's assets into the NBC Universal fold. So, I'm not so I, 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 I think the possibilities are endless at this so, point, uh, is the way I look at it. So in terms of other streaming things that might happen, deals, are there any investments that you've made based on your expectations of something that might happen? No, no. I mean, we, we really like this. And by the way, we own Comcast as well. You do? So that's okay. why I say that from that perspective. Right. But um, I think the truth is we're going to find out in this era is that only media people are good at media. Uh, and by the way, we found that every era, Coca-Cola sucked at, at doing movie pictures at one point. Um, the conglomerates got into the movie business. Gulf and Western was an example of that with Paramount. So um, what's interesting today is we think that big behemoth corporations, a.k.a. tech companies, are going to be better at media than media people, which huh. is kind of mind-blowing relative to history. Hmm. So, so Tara LaChapelle at Bloomberg Opinion has a column out today, uh, and uh, you're quoted in it, I, I noticed. Um, is, Am is Amazon's MGM deal a game changer? And you and she draws this connection between what happened with Amazon and, and Whole Foods. And, and you told her the biggest mistake of Jeff Bezos' career was buying Whole Foods. Um, excuse me, that was Bill Smead. I'm sorry. Correct. My that was, dad. Yep. Yeah, dad, that was yeah. your dad. Wrong Smead. But I, but I do. I am interested in this idea of the um, of the of you guys thinking about this from Amazon's perspective. So, what can Amazon do if if it's been such a mistake? 
for them to buy Whole Foods, what does Amazon do with MGM's content? Well, see, it, the, the, here's the reality, to whether it be the Whole Foods or the MGM, it can never be a meaningful part of the overall size of the business. And I'll give you a, a, another relic of history, okay? Um, don't forget that Expedia came out of Microsoft. Was Expedia a very successful online travel agent? The answer is yes. It's one of the mm-hmm. two. It's an oligopoly. It's booking in them. But inside Microsoft, it was not a meaningful business, and it never was going to be. Um, even today, it's a non-meaningful size of a business relative to Microsoft. So, and that's the problem, is that history would argue when you see businesses diversifying, you should get really nervous because it should tell you what's wrong with the core business that makes them want to go into a new arena. And today, we applaud it because the market has incredible confidence in the data or in the management team or, or whatever that is. The problem is we should all be asking, what's wrong with the core business? And why hmm. are we going to a different direction? All right. So tell us what else you like or anything that you've been buying. Home building, uh, our names that you guys love, uh, NVR, DHI, Lennar. Also, uh, we got some housing data today. Um, yeah. I think there was some of it a little bit troubling, but maybe not surprising in terms of prices, especially with the demand that's out there. Um, how do you see the housing market playing out uh, or continuing to play out? It's going to be wonderful. Uh, we <laughs> share with people that we, we're going to go to 50% higher home building numbers um, assuredly over the next decade at some point. And people say, that's impossible. And what I love about that is the economist should say it's possible, but it's based on price. And that's the way we're going to get enough labor and inputs and so on and so forth. So th- this is not a short-term phenomenon. It's not a sugar high like people running their stimmy checks out to the casino or out to the Robinhood accounts. We're talking about where people live. And so it's a completely different thing. The other thing I would say, the mall business is going to boom. It's already booming in markets that's, that have been open. And we think the economics of names like Macerich and Simon Property Group are going to make people cry at a later date. Why? Because pre-pandemic, mall business sucked. Post-pandemic, is winning and winning great. Tillman, I saw Tillman Fertitta being interviewed earlier today, and you can't find a restaurant that's not booming right now. And they're paying up for all kinds of delicacies at, at nice restaurants, and that's wonderful for a mall because that's the kind of property uh, if, business that sits on a mall. If those so restaurants you can't find parking at our mall and here in Arizona, we've been open for a year. Location, location, location. If those no, restaurants can find employees, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's tough to find employees, yeah. but you know what? A booming business where it's tough to find employees, that's a first world problem in my book. All right, we got to run. Hey, Cole, thank you so much. Say hi to your dad. Cole Smead, President and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management, on the phone from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, listen, their value fund has been a top performer consistently uh, over the years, and love it that we get to talk on uh, names. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.